Hello, and welcome to our first episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you are a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. If you work for a living, this podcast is for you. It contains important information that your perspective, current, or former employer does not want you to know, including the basics of your rights and obligations in the workplace, as well as practical tips on how to level the playing field regarding issues that arise every day on the job. Each future episode will feature an expert on the workplace or a guest who may tell us about his or her particular occupation. You know, your job is likely one of the three most important aspects of your life. Along with your family and your religion, in whatever order of priority you choose. Despite the central importance of one's job, most people do not fully understand the rules that define the employment relationship or know what to do when the relationship with their employer sours. All too often, employees who have questions about their rights at work rely on their not-so-well-intentioned bosses or on well-meaning but misinformed co-workers, friends, and family members for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the complexity of employment law. The information provided by these people cannot often be trusted. In addition, when employees search various websites for answers to their employment questions, they usually become more confused than they were to begin with. The difficulty in obtaining clear, reliable information leaves employees with many questions, such as the following. Do I have any rights in the workplace, even if I am told I am employed at will? What should I do when I receive a warning or a poor performance evaluation that I believe to be unfair? Can my boss fire me without any warning whatsoever? Can an employer require me to disclose my social media passwords? Am I entitled to overtime pay if I am paid a salary? If I quit, or am fired due to no fault of my own? Can my current employer enforce the non-competition agreement I signed when I was hired years ago? What forms of discrimination are unlawful? What are my rights if I think I am the victim of employment discrimination? Is a hostile work environment Illegal? Am I protected if I complain about unfair treatment or unethical conduct? And finally, when should I seek legal help 
for problems on the job. If you listen to this podcast, you will find answers to these and many other common questions in this series. And so we hope you come back for future episodes. We will also give practical tips to help you protect your job and enforce your rights. It bears mentioning at the outset that your chances of continuing to draw a peg check are much higher if you know your rights and employ successful strategies to keep your job, since the odds for a favorable outcome are not in your favor if you entrust your case to the justice system. Seeking a legal remedy in court after a job loss is less than ideal because of the many twists and turns that can ensue, as well as the very real possibility that a decision will not go in your favor. Even if you have been undeniably wronged in your employment, your outcome will be significantly impacted by factors such as whom you or the company retains as counsel, your ability to afford a legal battle, the attitude of the company toward a peaceful settlement, characteristics of the court system and judges in your jurisdiction, and ultimately your luck at a draw with potential jurors. Given these many variables, it is wiser for you to know your rights now rather than plan on winning a legal challenge down the long road of litigation. Since every employment situation is unique, many facts must be considered before you can determine if your company has violated the law. This podcast is designed to provide basic and useful information about your rights as an employee. It will help you determine whether to seek the advice of an employment attorney about your particular situation. It is not intended as legal advice and should not be construed as such. Freaking out about work will focus on the rights of employees in the workplace because these rights are so essential for people who take pride in what they do. When we hear that someone was fired from their job, we often forget how important someone's job or line of work is to them, even though we all spend more time each week doing our job than any other one thing. We work as much as we sleep in a week. We work more than we interact with our spouse, friends, or family. And we work more hours in a month than we devote to our religion in a year. When people are fired, it is often devastating to them. In the coming episodes, we are going to explore your rights in the workplace precisely because they are so important and, yet, strangely, most people do not take the time to really understand their rights. There are no classes in grade school, 
high school, or college for the most part that prepare people with knowledge about their rights associated with something, in this case work, that will likely consume much of their future life. Hopefully, we will be able to explain your rights in the context of real-life examples so that you are armed to protect what is a very important part of your life. When I was in high school or college, I can't remember which really, I came across a bestseller by Studs Terkel, an oral historian and radio broadcaster. The book was called, quote, Working. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do, unquote. It was a 1974 nonfiction book, consisting of over 100 interviews conducted with everyone from grave diggers to studio heads. The book provided a timeless snapshot of people's feelings about their working lives and was a relevant and lasting look at how work fits into American life. Turkle's book investigates the meaning of work for different people under different circumstances, showing that it can vary in importance. The book also reflects Turkle's general idea that work provides meaning and dignity for workers. The book is an exploration of what makes work meaningful for people in all walks of life. From Loving Al, the parking valet, Dolores, the waitress, the fireman, to the business executive, the narrative of Turkle moves through mundane details, emotional truths, and existential questioning. As the foreword to the book points out, quote, Mr. Turkle found that work was a search, sometimes successful, sometimes not, for daily meaning as well as daily bread. In my view, people find dignity in what they do, regardless of the type of job, because it allows them to have meaning. It allows them to provide for their families, for themselves, or serve some other useful purpose. Like people who dedicate themselves to nonprofit work that fills their soul. If work is not central to who a person is, why do so many people ask when they meet you, What do you do? And you know they are really saying, What is your job? Back in the 1970s, as I thought about what I would like to do after I graduated, Working was a compelling and fascinating book examining jobs and the people who do them. I wanted to be a lawyer because I admired one of my dad's friends, Ralph Mitchell, 
who was an insurance defense trial lawyer. But reading Turkle's book drove me toward thinking about employment and labor law because of the importance of work to everything and everybody in America. You know, Europeans joke that Americans live to work while they, the Europeans, work to live. But it is so true for many Americans that we do live to work. I think about my own father, who supported a family of six on his wages from selling ads for the Yellow Pages. In those days, the Yellow Pages was a four to five inch thick book, maybe even larger, that everyone had in their homes. It was delivered free that listed every business in the region and their phone number and address. They were categorized by businesses, such as auto repair shops, dry cleaners, doctors, and realtors. My dad's job was to convince the business owner that, first, they needed to buy a listing, and most did, and second, Perhaps they wanted a larger listing that could be a few more lines, a quarter page, or even a full page. My father was a natural salesman, jovial and interested in talking to people. His job sounded like fun. He drove around town, met people, sold them ads, and he was paid to do it. My dad's job certainly had its fun, but the day-in and day-out pressure to sell ads had to be incredibly stressful on him, although he never showed it, nor did I notice it when I was young. Bob Freaking, my dad, could easily have been included in Turkle's book. Nonetheless, when people asked, who is Bob Freaking?, The answer often was not that he was a great father and husband with a strong faith, although he was, but rather, he's the yellow page salesman. His occupation defined who he was to many people, and he loved his job. He did not make a lot of money, but his work made him feel successful, and he was. I also think about my closest uncle, Harold Freaking, who was a pharmacist in Pleasant Ridge, a middle-class suburb of Cincinnati. Harold was a bit more serious than my father, and he too was successful. We saw Harold and his wife Jean often, as they had no children and were basically an extension of our family. As with my dad, I always thought Harold's job did not create a lot of stress in his life, and I never paid attention to whether Harold had enough for retirement at age 65, which in the 1960s was the presumed age to retire. But, like my father, Harold was identified by non-family members not as the guy who was a great uncle, but as the pharmacist. The oral histories in working are stories from a distant era 
when management practices and computers were just beginning to transform the American workplace. In the last 45 years, productivity in our country has soared, but job satisfaction has plummeted. It is hard to read working without wondering what has gone wrong. In my life's work for the last 30 years, I have seen firsthand the emotional toll on people when they lose their jobs. Often, people are angry because of the way their employer stripped them of their job, but mostly they are hurt. I find it incredible, even after 30 years, that there are many people out there who are supervisors, managers, and executives that simply don't seem to know or don't seem to care about how important one's job is. How else can you explain someone being escorted off the premises of a workplace when they are fired, even though they pose no risk to the company's property? How else do you explain sudden terminations for work performance reasons, supposedly, when there has been no prior discussion about it, let alone a warning? And how is it that you can explain a company firing an ex-employee, or I'm sorry, rather fighting an ex-employee over unemployment compensation, even though whether the person receives it has little or no financial impact on the employer? Thinking about Turkle's book, I remembered one of my first clients. Roseanne, who was sexually harassed in a Ford Motor Company factory for over a year. Her ex-husband repeatedly plastered sexual jokes and pictures on the walls of the factory simply out of spite in order to demean Roseanne. Roseanne's complaints to management went unheeded at first because Ford claimed they did not witness her ex taping the grotesque pictures around the factory, and then later because the ex did it out of spite, not because she was female. Roseanne suffered extreme anxiety and was humiliated by the treatment. For whatever reason, the company executives ignored the issue. It was outrageous treatment, and yet her ex-husband remained employed. Was it simply the good old boys club? The case literally shocked me. How could anyone allow an employee to emotionally abuse someone else in their workplace and try to strip their dignity? It was one of my first encounters with what I now call the 1% rule. I've always believed that most managers and supervisors are well-intentioned, good people. But it's the 1% of supervisors or bosses who are simply ignorant, uncaring, or disrespectful. 
I also think of one of my next clients, Don, who worked for a steel company. He had a relatively mundane job that only required a grade school education, though he was a college graduate. But the job provided dignity to him and allowed him to provide for his family. After Don suffered a brain injury while on a roller coaster, no fault of the roller coaster, it just happened to be bad timing, he was disabled for a period before he rehabbed precisely so he could return to work, and he did so successfully. His wife, Debbie, still had to drive him to and from work while juggling family responsibilities. One day just before Christmas, Debbie pulled into the parking lot waiting for Don, as was customary. Don emerged, as usual, after his shift carrying his lunchbox. But, unlike most days when he was smiling and ready to give Debbie a kiss, his shoulders were slouched, his head was down, and he appeared distraught. Debbie knew from a distance something was wrong, and it was. Don had been laid off just months after returning to work successfully. He was a beaten man, and he never recovered. The company needed someone to perform his mundane tasks. Yet someone, and actually no one took credit, of course, for it, chose him, of all people, for the layoff. A man who had a serious brain injury. His subsequent court victory did not erase the shame and humiliation Don went through. He thought of himself as a failure, as the family struggled, and he could not find work. I also think about seven women who were store managers for Chipotle and who had the misfortune of getting a new regional boss after many successful years. The new supervisor was an outright sexist, and he soon made up reasons to replace the women. They had taken great pride in their work. High school graduates mainly, they had made it a job that was respected by their friends and family. They ran a popular restaurant, and it gave each of them great dignity. When they hired Kelly Myers and Katie Neff of Freaking Myers and Rule to represent them, the company had the gall to try to blame them for unsanitary conditions in other Chipotle restaurants, even though their performance reviews said otherwise. The women were stunned. How could one guy strip them of their sense of doing something important? Did anyone care? One of the women had just lost a child after delivering twins with the second child in ICU. It did not help things when we learned that the boss was largely unchecked with no human resource guardrails. He was part of the 1% I mentioned earlier. 
Like Don, their subsequent victory in court did not restore their dignity. Sure, it gave them some money, and tears flowed with the wind, but at what cost? A fourth client, John, successfully worked in the utility industry. But when he uncovered a massive fraud and money laundering scheme, he was suddenly laid off in a corporate reorganization. His performance reviews were excellent, but his dignity was stripped because he did the right thing and blew the whistle. The right thing, as the company claimed he should do in their company credo that painted the company as a law-abiding corporate citizen. John struggled to find a comparable job. His family suffered. And for what? So a few guys who got caught were allowed to cover up for their misdeeds? His pre-trial settlement restored some money, but it never restored the pride he took in his job at one of America's largest utility companies. The world of work described by Turkle in 1974 feels altogether more stable and predictable than it does now. Working depicts a time just before great changes happened in the workplace, changes that no one in the book predicted. The concept of a work-life balance was decades away, as was the idea of a portfolio career. Most of the men and women Turkle spoke to could expect to remain in one job until retirement. Few of the interviewees mentioned the potential threats that computers posed to their livelihood. The specter of race relations loomed over much of the workers' testimony, but not once in 589 pages does anyone express fear that their work might be outsourced to Mexico, India, or China. The future was something to embrace rather than to fear. The 20-hour work week is a possibility today, one worker told Turkle. The reality now is that, nearly five decades later, most workers are expected to work longer, retire later, and forego many of their benefits and securities. The 401k plan replaced traditional pensions to a large degree. And workers now have an extra burden to think about as they go through life. Will my 401k plan, if I'm lucky enough to have one, be enough to supplement Social Security so I can enjoy the same standard of living in retirement as I do while working? And can I retire before or at the age of 65? Unfortunately for many, that answer is no. While revisiting the book is a reminder of how the world, with its e-jobs and virtual offices, has changed, it is also a reminder of what has not changed. The desire of workers for dignity and respect. I'm a checker 
and I'm very proud of it, says Babe to Turkle in the book. She was a supermarket checker who had been doing the same job for almost 30 years. She continued, I'm making an honest living. Whoever looks down on me, they're lower than I am. Roy, a 58-year-old garbage man, tells Turkle, I don't look down on my job in any way. I couldn't say I despise myself for doing it. I feel better at it than I did at the office. It's meaningful for society. Many of the specific jobs in working have disappeared. But in a world where customer calls from the United States could be answered anywhere in the world, where we shop in the same chain stores, eat in the same restaurant franchises, and shop online from Amazon and other retailers and don't need to leave our homes, working remains a timely read. In his introduction, Turkle wondered if, quote, perhaps immortality is part of the quest. To be remembered was the wish, spoken and unspoken, of the heroes and heroines of this book, period, unquote. For some, that immortality came through what they made. Nothing in this world lasts forever, says Carl, a stonemason. But Bedford Limestone, they claim, deteriorates one-sixteenth of an inch every 100 years, and it's around four or five inches for a house. So that's getting awful close to immortality, that is. For others, such as firefighter Tom, immortality came through what they did. He said, You see them come out with babies in their hands. You see them give mouth-to-mouth when a guy's dying. You can't get around that shit. That's real. It shows I did something on this earth. Now, not everyone can be a firefighter, but our clients and all those who shared their stories and words with Turkle explained directly and indirectly how their work gave their lives meaning. And in return, Turkle conferred on them something very close to immortality. I don't know for sure what motivated me to go to law school and ultimately choose to become an employment lawyer and eventually spend 30 years representing employees, but there's no doubt Studs Turkle and his book had some impact. So many employees want their work to be meaningful, and I have met thousands over the years that saw roadblocks erected by bosses, co-workers, their company, that thwarted that desire, and those workers really had no idea about their rights and responsibilities in the workplace. We will talk in coming episodes of what you can do if you are mistreated on the job. Why do employers treat some people like this? Well, I think part of it is caused by misinformed supervisors who also don't understand how important jobs are to people and don't understand their responsibility to ensure fair treatment. 
One of the causes is undoubtedly the outdated employment at will proclamations from nearly every employer that are, well, how can I say this politely? I'm not sure, so I'll say it impolitely and beg your forgiveness. Those proclamations are bullshit, and it causes many of the wrongful actions that we will discuss over the coming weeks. I would like to explain why such statements about employment at will are misguided in this episode. And so I call this portion of the podcast Job Security, Why You Cannot Be Disciplined or Fired for Any Reason. Employment at will is an often repeated phrase that is, in many ways, as outdated as the factories of the late 1800s that spawned the legal doctrine. The employment at will doctrine, taken literally, means that unless you have a contract of employment providing job security rights, an employer may discipline or fire you for a good reason, a bad reason, even an immoral or unethical reason, or no reason at all. Thus, under this doctrine, if it existed today, an employer could lawfully fire an employee because of his race, his age, or any of the other exceptions discussed in this podcast. Obviously, that is not true. According to legal scholars, the policy of employment at will began to appear in the 1880s as part and parcel of the laissez-faire philosophy of the times. Under the laissez-faire approach, the federal, state, and local governments intervened very little in issues relating to business and commerce and instead allowed the free market to dictate employment policies. Adoption of the employment at will doctrine occurred during the second phase of the Industrial Revolution, which ran from the late 1800s to World War I. This doctrine afforded mutual rights to employers and employees in that employers could terminate employees at any time and employees could quit whenever they saw fit to do so. Although employment at will afforded employers considerable power over the fate of their employees, it also enabled employees to demand better treatment at times when laborers were scarce and employers could not afford to lose them. The policy has since fallen out of favor with modern legal scholars many of whom question even the authenticity of the purported origins of the rule. Now, most importantly, the doctrine, if repeated enough, encourages the 1% of supervisors and bosses not to care or worry about the fairness of employment decisions. When a supervisor is told by the company that his or her subordinates are employed at will, it gives him or her the false impression that the company can unilaterally decide to discipline or terminate an employee for any reason and that the employee has no legal recourse. But this is simply false, given the many exceptions to the outdated doctrine that have come about through legislative action beginning in the 1930s, or judicial decisions in the last 40 or 50 years. 
Not surprisingly, the adoption and expansion of employment at will coincided with the birth of the labor movement in the United States. Workers in various industries sought ways to band together to protect themselves from unfavorable treatment and arbitrary terminations by employers. Unionization allowed individuals to unite in order to bargain for better working conditions and job protection, with the collective threat of a strike if fair terms could not be negotiated. The primary benefit of organizing employees was the effective abolishment of the employment at will policy in unionized workplaces. In contrast to the laissez-faire right of a company to unilaterally terminate an employment relationship for any or no reason, unions won the right of job security for their members by requiring employers to prove just cause before disciplining or firing any employee of the organized company. If you are employed in a unionized workplace, You likely have a grievance and arbitration process to challenge unfair discipline or discharge. This right is independent of most of the rights discussed in this podcast series, so the union representing employees may choose to challenge discipline through the grievance and arbitration process, or if unionized employees believe some unlawful motive existed for the company's actions, they may also proceed through the judicial system to enforce their rights. Many unionized employees can pursue both routes. Not coincidentally, as the doctrine of employment at will has diminished in recent years, legislation to protect employees' rights has expanded. A host of laws has been developed to increase job security by prohibiting employer conduct that previously would have been perfectly acceptable under the employment-at-will doctrine in non-unionized workplaces. Consider for a moment the following federal law exceptions to the employment-at-will doctrine. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that prohibits most discrimination. The Pregnancy Discrimination Act the Equal Pay Act, and the Lilly Ledbetter Act. Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act. The Age Discrimination in Employment Act. The Older Workers Benefit Protection Act. The Uniform Services Employment and Retraining Act of 1994. The Occupational Safety and Health Act. The Americans with Disabilities Act. The Rehabilitation Act the Family and Medical Leave Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, the Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act, otherwise known as WARN, the National Labor Relations Act, the Consumer Credit Protection Act, the Juror Protection Act, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, otherwise known as GINA, Section 1983 of the Civil Rights Act of 1870, the Whistleblower Protection Act, the False Claims Act, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, 
the Federal Civil Service Reform Act. Consider also that many states, either legislatively or judicially, have created exceptions to employment at will in the following areas. Sexual orientation and preference. Transgender discrimination. Breach of contract. Promissory estoppel. Breach of public policy. Negligent or intentional interference with the employment relationship. Defamation. Intentional infliction of emotional distress. False imprisonment. Invasion of privacy. Fraud. And assault. I think you get my point. If there are these many exceptions, why do employers give their supervisors employee handbooks that still talk about employment at will? What message does that send to the boss who does not really care about others? The 1% of supervisors that I mentioned earlier have the false or arrogant impression that they control the worker and they do not understand others' sense of worth that comes from their job. And believe me, when these same guys find themselves on the other end of the equation and are fired, they scream bloody murder, forgetting that they devalued people who worked for them. Although the vast majority of the exceptions to the antiquated employment at will doctrine do not apply to every particular situation, evaluation of challenged employment decisions should include the possibility that one or more of the exceptions above, as well as others that are developing at the federal and state level today, might be applicable. You know, unfortunately, even well-intentioned lawyers remember the employment at will doctrine from law school and still erroneously invoke it today without explaining the various exceptions. For example, they might say, you probably have no basis to challenge your termination because Ohio is an employment at will state, when, in fact, it is not. Or they may say, you probably cannot do anything about your hostile work environment because you are employed at will. When, in fact, for practical reasons, you can do something about hostile work environments that are based on a protected characteristic. Advice like this from a lawyer borders on malpractice, given the implication that somehow the employment at will doctrine is as alive and well today as it was during the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. These lawyers, certainly not employment lawyers, seemingly forget that Congress and the various states have enacted a plethora of exceptions to the doctrine. Yes, it was legal during the early 20th century to fire someone for trying to form a union, for being African American, for being too old, and so on. It was legal back then because employment at will meant you could be fired for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. This is hardly the case anymore, and you should consult an employment lawyer, not a tax lawyer, not an estate lawyer, not an insurance lawyer, if you have one or more questions about your rights. Here is a very simple tip. 
in assessing whether the treatment of you on the job was unlawful, you should ask whether you were treated differently than others in the company in similar circumstances. Even a reason that seems legitimate when viewed in a vacuum can be discriminatory or lead to some other invocation of an exception to the employment at will doctrine. If you are fired because you missed work without calling in to report your absence on several occasions, this might sound like a good reason to justify the company's actions. However, what if other employees were not fired for similar infractions? What if you had reported recently an OSHA violation? Most people who believe they were treated unfairly do not want to scream discrimination, but they likely do not know enough about possible legal theories to form a valid opinion as to whether some exception to the employment at will policy provides them with rights. Thus, simply asking someone who was fired, do you think you were fired because you are a woman, will likely result in the answer no. Instead, What you need to examine is whether the person was treated differently than others or differently than company policy provides or whether they were disciplined or fired after engaging in some type of protected activity that shields them from unlawful retaliation. The many exceptions to employment at will have effectively disabled and devoured the rule. You may believe you are employed at will if you are not protected by an individual employment contract or a union's collective bargaining agreement, but everyone is protected to some degree against unfair, arbitrary, or capricious terminations. It's just that some people can utilize more of the exceptions to employment at will than can others. The bottom line of today's episode and future episodes is simply this. Because of the importance of what you do for a living, for your personal dignity, and for financial stability, you should learn your rights and responsibilities in the workplace. We hope that this podcast series can accomplish that goal. Well, that concludes episode one of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you have enjoyed this episode and will tune in next time for our discussion with Aaron Heydrich about the coronavirus crisis, how it might change the way work is done in America, and legal rights of workers during the pandemic. I want to conclude this episode with a quote from Studs Terkel. Quote, Work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread. For recognition as well as cash. For astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life, rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying.
unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as compensation in whatever work we do. And please spread the word if you enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends and colleagues to Google freakingoutabout.com or search on their favorite podcast app for Freaking Out About Work and they will be able to listen to the show on most podcast applications. This is Randy Freaking signing off, and in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long, everybody. <laughs>